I invite you this morning, uh, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to the book of Revelation. Again, in this Easter season, we are looking together at several texts in the book of Revelation. Today, we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 10. But as you turn there, um, let me remind you a little bit of where we've been. We started a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which is the opening vision of the Revelator where the revelator steps into the throne room and he sees that there is one who is seated on the throne in all of creation, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, the whole church, all of creation worshiping the one who is on the throne. And there's a scroll in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, but it is sealed with seven seals. That, that great scroll of history. Can, can this creation get to the purposes that God has for it? And the answer seems to be no, if you watch the news every night. Um, and so John weeps, because there's no one worthy to open the seals and unroll a scroll. But the elder says, no, there is one who's worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is conquered, he is worthy, he can open the seal and unroll the scrolls. He hears lion, but then he looks and he sees a lamb that was slain. Jesus Christ, the revelation of God's self-giving love, he is worthy, he can draw all things to his glorious conclusion. Thanks be to God. In chapter 6, the seals begin to open and all sorts of judgments begin to come out. Judgments primarily in, in Revelation 6 and 7 that begin to question our sense of security. The empire, if you will, the, the principalities and powers always invite us to find security in places that look secure but aren't really as secure as they may appear at first. So these judgments come questioning all of that security. And at the end of chapter 6, there's an important question that I want you to remember. It's this question, who can stand? If all of these places where the world finds its security are not secure, then where can we stand? Who can stand in the midst of such insecurity? Chapter 7 is the answer. There is a people that John sees who are being marked by the life of the Lamb, whose lives radiate the life of the Lamb, and at first he hears 144,000, all of God's purposes for Israel being redeemed, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They can stand. They have been redeemed. They are marked by the Lamb. But then he looks and he sees you and me. He sees a group of people that no one can count from every tribe and nation and language. People who can stand in such insecure times because we are, well, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness a people being marked by the Lamb. Last week, we looked at chapters 8 and 9. The seals bring these judgments that question our sense of security. But as soon as the seventh seal is open, now there's seven trumpets. First, though, we looked last week at the beginning of chapter 8. Before the trumpets blow, we get a half an hour where the prayers of the saints, like we just offered to God, are lifted up to, the, to God. Mixed with the incense of purity, mixed with the power of fire from the altar thrown back on earth, our prayers make a difference. But then the trumpets begin to blow, and we saw last week that the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9 all have remnants into the story of Exodus, the, the plagues that come upon the life of Pharaoh. And just like the plagues that come in the Exodus story, when we get to the end of the Exodus story, Pharaoh's heart is still hard. It doesn't matter how many plagues come, Pharaoh still doesn't repent. And last week, we left off at the end of chapter 9 with this realization. We have had seals and we have had trumpets. 
We've had a quarter of the earth destroyed and then a third of the earth destroyed. And what happens? Nothing. Nobody repents. And so this week, we're going to look at 10 and 11, next week, 12 and 13. Now buckle up. I almost said early, a few weeks ago, if you're going to take vacation, choose today and next week. Um, <laughs> maybe four of the hardest chapters in the hardest book of the Bible we're going to deal with today and next Sunday. But this morning, I want us to look at a few verses from chapter 10 and a few verses from chapter 11. If you're here with us and able, I invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word this morning. As we look at Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse 8. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make you sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Into chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod, which was like a pole, and I was told, get up and measure God's temple, the altar, and those who worship there. But don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, because it has been given to the nations. They will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Skipping to verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and he will rule forever and always. And then the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. They said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and enforced your rule. The nations were enraged, but your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged. The time came to reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the chest containing his covenant appeared in his temple, and there was lightning and voices and thunder and an earthquake and large hail. This is the word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I wanted to add there, like a good graduation, but that was, it's a little too soon for that joke. Um, this morning, as we think about chapters 10 and 11, again, they are about as difficult as texts get. And I have to say that, that some people, especially in the last century or so, some people have, have tended to read chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 as a form of prediction, as a form of prediction, of historical prediction. I would argue, however, that for the majority of Christian history, these chapters have not been read so much as historical prediction as much as they are read as theological picture, parable, if you will. There are some, again, who would take three stories that essentially happen in chapters 10 and 11, 
the eating of the scroll, the measuring of the temple, and then two witnesses who come and are killed but are resurrected. They'll see those as kind of predictions, and so some expect, and every once in a while you can go online and find folks who are sure there's a third temple that's getting ready to be constructed in Jerusalem, and this is going to be the sign of the end times, or who are these two witnesses, and maybe it's this person, and maybe it's that person, etc. I, again, am going to argue with you this morning and, and offer to us that what I think we have in chapters 10 and 11 are not historical predictions, but profound theological pictures that you and I are invited to lean into and allow our imagination to be shaped by. So if we go back, at the end of chapter 9, we've had, we've had bowls pour out all of this wrath. We've had trumpets announced and all of these plagues come out. And, and then all of a sudden, the beginning of chapter 10, we get pictures really from the book of Daniel. One of the things as we study Revelation together, I'll say again and again, is we have this idea, and, and I think the best way to understand Revelation is to think of it as a kind of theological mural painted in words, but the paints, the words that the revelator is choosing are the words of the prophets in particular, the Old Testament, a little bit of the New Testament, but the prophetic words painted. And so we see the 10th chapter open with an angel very similar to a vision out of the book of Daniel. From chapters 4 through 9, we've had a picture of the throne room of heaven, but now it's as though the camera shifts its focus, and now we're back on earth. And we see this angel come to proclaim this is the end, the seventh trumpet is going to blow, and after the seventh trumpet, here's what's going to happen. Seven thunders! But fascinating, in chapters 10 and 11, before the thunders show up, God basically says this, never mind, seal up the thunders. Let's hang on to those. I would argue that what we seem to have happening is this realization that the seals poured out their judgment, the trumpets poured out their plagues, and nothing happened. And now we're going to get thunders, and it's as though God says, well, now for something completely different. Let's not do that. Hang on to that. Seal up the thunders. And beginning with the text that we read, we get three images, three pictures. I actually think I have some pictures to go with it today. The first is actually taken almost exactly out of Ezekiel, the second chapter. The angel comes with a little scroll and invites the revelator, much like God invited Ezekiel to do, <laughs> to eat the scroll. I love that picture. Um, to eat the scroll. It's a fascinating image that says the word matters. But what matters most out of this portion of the scroll that is now open, that is now belongs to the revelator, the story of God that takes up our story is now given to us, but it is not given to us so much on paper for us to proclaim so that our mouth matters, but it's not all that matters. We're invited to eat it, to take it into ourselves, to become the message, if you will. And so I don't think you have to be a great biblical scholar to see, oh, I, I understand this. I'll use a fancy theological term. It's kind of what we would call Eucharistic. Eucharist is the word we often use to describe the Lord's Supper. It means Thanksgiving. But Eucharistic also means as we gather around the Lord's table, we do the most interesting thing each time we gather around it. We don't just come to proclaim the truth of a crucified Lord who has been risen, or we don't even come to just proclaim the truth of God's grace extended to all. We actually come to eat it, to ingest it. 
And I will say this so often as we gather around the Eucharistic table, I will say, nowhere, you know, the old diet line, you are what you eat, nowhere is that more true than in the Lord's Supper. We're inviting the Lord in this means of grace to make us what we eat today, to make us the body of Christ in the world. And so this powerful image of John not just having prophetic words to say, but becoming prophetic presence in the world by eating the scroll. Then at the beginning of the 11th chapter, and here's the next picture, the 11th chapter, he's given a rod. And again, this has remnant of Ezekiel. I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 20. And then also the book of Zechariah. Where after the people have been in exile, and Babylon has destroyed the temple, they come back and begin the project of rebuilding the second temple. And they're given this task to take a rod and to draw where the walls of the temple will go. Now, in some ways, that's very pragmatic. So when the workers come to build the walls, they'll know where to put them. But it's much more symbolic than that. The symbolism is that Babylon, which is the same metaphor used for Rome in the the book of Revelation, Babylon that has come and overwhelmed and in some sense corrupted the holy places of God, those are now going to be remeasured out. You know, do you remember when you were a freshman in college? This will be helpful to some of you graduating seniors. A, A few years ago, there was a study done, I think it was about a decade ago, and it was the first time in colleges where more students, as they moved into the dorm, were sharing a bedroom for the first time in their lives, right? Because most of us in little families got to have our own room, but now you have a roommate. Um, Every once in a while when you're a roommate, do you remember, I had a very sloppy roommate whose name will be unmentioned um, because we're recording today. But I do remember having to say, this is the line, right? (laughs) This is the line. You get to keep your stuff on this side of the line. This is my side of the line. Or when you're in the backseat of the car on vacation with your little sister and you say, this is the, don't touch that. The image is that the prophet is invited to draw the line and, and the line, all that is inside the line is holy. All that is corrupt is left outside that line. It's this picture of a people who are being transformed into a holy people, a people in whom the presence of God dwells. Now it could be that this is meant to be a predictive text that sometime now that the second temple has also been destroyed, the third temple will emerge. But I think it's much more likely, especially given some of the language that's used in chapters 10, 11, language like lampstands and olive trees that are used earlier in Revelation to represent the church and God's people, and especially the language of the first century church, especially Paul in particular, who loves to say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So glorify God with your bodies. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple built on the cornerstone of Christ. We are that temple, that place marked off by God to be where two or three gathered together. There he is in the midst of us. Are you with me? And so it's this powerful image that we are a people who are invited to not just proclaim a word, but to eat the word. And then we're invited to be a people in whom the very presence of God dwells. Now, we didn't read this text in chapter 11, but I'd invite you to do it this week. After the revelator marks out the temple, we get this third picture, which is of these two witnesses that show up. 
it seems pretty clear in the text that they at least embody or symbolize both Moses and Elijah returning. There's a lot of Jewish expectation that the new creation would not begin until Moses and Elijah made a reappearance. Certainly in the Gospels, there are these powerful moments where Jesus will proclaim, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me, which seems like such a strange thing to do. But then the very next thing that happens, Jesus takes his disciples up on a mountain. Moses and Elijah show up. It's what we call the transfiguration. And we hear this voice saying, yes, indeed, listen to him. This is my son. And so the powerful image of the transfiguration is Jesus has not come to abolish Moses, the law, or Elijah, the prophets. But as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he has come to fill them full, to fulfill them, to bring them to their ultimate fruition. And so many scholars argue the third picture here is that, again, those, those, the presence of both the law, the presence of the prophets comes together in this people called church. And we become the very embodiment, the fulfillment, the filling full, if you will, of God's purposes in the world. So if you're with me, we have these three powerful theological pictures of people who eat the word, of people who are marked off to be the very presence of God in the world, and of people who bring together God's purposes both in the law and the prophets in their life together. You with me? Wow. Now, two cool things if you're still awake. The first is living into those pictures is actually quite hard. When we eat the scroll, as it says, it tastes good, but it doesn't feel great later. A little like Chipotle, right? Like it's good. The powerful image there is that to embody the word is so powerful and beautiful, but it does come with its difficulties and challenges. In chapter 11, when the temple is marked off, it's marked off as this place of sanctuary, of care, of this place of God's presence, but it also says, but the outer courts will be filled by the Gentiles, by by especially those who make war on that, who, who bring challenge and difficulty, persecution to that. One of the odd parts about the text is it says, it gives how many months that will last, 42 months, which is three and a half years. It's kind of odd. And then, when the prophets show up, the empire kills them. They're martyred. And here's the weird part of the text. They lay on the ground for three and a half days. But then much like Ezekiel, again, the breath of God comes on their dry bones, their dead bodies, if, they will, if you will. The breath of God breathes into them and they're resurrected. What is that about? I don't know. Skip ahead. Um, no. My best guess is that what the revelator is trying to say to those of us who desire to lean into these images, to be a people who embody the word, that is going to have its challenges. It's going to taste good, but it's going to, it's going to come with the cost of discipleship. 
to be the temple, to be the people who embody the very presence of the living God in the world is going to be wonderful, but it won't always be easy. And to bring together the law and the prophets itself may even call us to martyrdom, as it did many in the early church. Here's what I think those three and a halfs are about. If I could give you a quiz today, it would be something like this. The numbers, some of the numbers in the scripture matter. Anytime you see 12, think the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles all coming together. 12 is often the symbol of the church. 40, lots of 40s. 40s always this time we get into it. It feels really long while we're in it, but we've been changed by the end of it. Six, right? Six, number of incompletion. Not a great number, especially if you get three of them in a row. Run, right? Lots of incompletion. Seven, though, is the number of completion. Seven days in the week, seven years in the sabbatical cycle. Seven's this number of completion. I think, I could be wrong, but I think what the revelator is saying to us here is yes, indeed, there's challenges to the people who embody God's presence in the world, but it's only half the time. It's three and a half years out of the seven. And yes, the witnesses are martyred and they lay on the ground, but they only lay on the ground half the time. <laughs> three and a half days. But the next three and a half days are filled with the power of God's breath and spirit and resurrection life. Can I tell you what I think that's saying to us? This is so exciting to me. I, I'm working on a book on, Mar on the Gospel of Mark, and part of what I love about the Gospel of Mark is this. The first half is so happy. Jesus is healing and blessing and feeding and crowds are coming around and he's running away from them. And he's a little suspicious of them, but they all keep showing up because when the kingdom of God shows up, lots of great things happen. But then we get right into the middle of chapter eight and Jesus scares them all and says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And then the last half of the book is all the cost of discipleship, going to Jerusalem, taking up the cross. Everybody leaves, only Jesus remains at the end. I have to say, I think it's because I was raised in a kind of, forgive me, but a kind of an American Christianity that tends to focus on health and wealth. Come to Jesus and this is what you'll get out of it. That I love the gospel of Mark because it's like, well, you might get that stuff, but take up the cross. And so I, I tend to want to preach the last half of Mark. In some ways, the revelator is helping those of us who've had way too much of the last half of Mark. And is writing to people who have counted the cost of discipleship. Who realize how much churning of the stomach the scroll causes. Have experienced the uneasiness of relationship and the Gentiles. And have experienced oftentimes the cost even to the point of death, of martyrdom. But John is inverting that to say, yes, that is a part of what it means to be the people of God, but that's not the end of the story. Indeed, darkness does not get the last word, but light does. Indeed, evil does not get the last word, but good does. Indeed, sin does not get the last word, but grace does. And indeed, in the case of the two prophets, death doesn't get the last word, but life does. And so is there a cost to discipleship? Yes. But the cost also comes with the glorious benefit of the unique, transformative power of the resurrected Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so if you're still with me, chapter 9 ends, no one repents. 
And now chapters 10 and 11 are filled with three stories that basically say we need to eat the scroll, become the temple, and embody both the law and the prophets. I want to show you something so cool. If you have your Bible, go back with me to chapter 11. You're going to talk to your neighbor about this later. This is so cool. Chapter 11, verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed by the earthquake, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Awesome, right? Now, you're not very excited about this, but let me tell you why you should be. So judgment comes. The, the trumpet sounds. A tenth of the city is destroyed. There are a number of scholars who earlier in the text, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned. And there's a number of scholars who think the revelator is drawing back to that story. If you remember the story, Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. The messengers come to Abraham and say, Abraham, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham gets into a barter session with God. Do you remember it? Abraham says, but wait, God, what if we could find 50 righteous people? And God says, yeah, okay, 50 righteous people will spare the city. And then, I love this part. Abraham says, well, well, if you took 50, how about 40? And God says, okay, 40. Well, since you said 40, how about 30, right? So we get this barter session. And finally, Abraham barters God all the way down to 10. If you can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Unfortunately, you can't find 10 righteous and Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. But here, some scholars think is what John is referring to here. Again, the empire, the, the cities, the corrupt will be destroyed. But in the Old Testament text, it was 10 righteous people and all the rest got destroyed. Now in Revelation, 10% of the city is destroyed, but 90% is redeemed. In the story of Elijah, and the prophets of Baal, the whole nation has gone after, after Baal, except for, in Elijah's case, 7,000 people who are the, the 7,000 remaining who had not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, in Revelation, as judgment comes, 7,000 people are destroyed. But here's the cool part. All the rest Give glory to God and join in the hallelujah chorus. And he shall reign forever and ever. You're not excited about this. Here's what I want you to see. Chapter 9, wrath, wrath, wrath. Nothing happens. Chapters 10 and 11, church, church, church. And almost the entire creation enters into the great worship of the creator. Oh, so here's my last picture. I think I took this one. So th these are some guys. Um, these are some guys at the Rose Parade. They don't make the broadcast. There's a little seminary in Pasadena that part of their training is they send street preachers out with megaphones. And so every year at the end of the Rose Parade route, there's several guys who come with megaphones and, and, and they, they greet the new year with such wonderful things. Happy New Year, you're going to die, right? And they have signs um, that say God loves and kills, and most of them are quotations from the book of Revelation, warning people about the destruction that is to come. And I want to say I don't question their motives. 
they desire people to not experience the consequences of sin. But one of the things I want us to see that I think Revelation teaches us is not just that that may be the worst methodology of evangelism still available to us. But that at the end of all that wrath, nothing happens. Transformation takes place when a people eat the scroll, become the embodiment of God's presence in the world, and the law and the prophets come at work in them. And suddenly transformation begins to take place. Thanks be to God. And so quickly let me say, I am convinced that the Lord wants us to be a people who know how to eat the word. I'm so thankful for, I know that I'm a weird preacher in so many ways. I, I'm not good at topical preaching. You may have noticed that. I don't really do series on stuff. Mostly because I, she's not here today, but if my wife were here, if I ever did like a seven-week series on relationships, she'd tell me I could only do the first two and then I'd have to invite somebody who knows what they're talking about to talk about the next five. <laughs> I'm just not very good at that. But mostly, and, and I'm so thankful for so many of you who bring your Bibles and are, I, I just, I want you to be a student of the Word. To love it, to know it. But more than knowing it intellectually, for it to just become part of who we are. And there is a balance to be found there. Sometimes we can take this word of eating the word and we can end up in some forms of works righteousness. But that's not what the Lord wants for us either. But as James reminds us, we can't just be hearers of the word, we have to be doers of the word. People who embody it and live it. The Lord so desperately wants us to be a people in whom the unique presence of God is at work. Where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst of us. I know at times that can move into an extreme, much like the temptation of Jesus to throw himself off the temple. We can move into kind of forms of signs and wonders that become just simply an attempt to draw a crowd. But at the same time, we can go to the other extreme where to be a Christian is just to offer a whole bunch of Christian self-help to people. And frankly, you can get that all sorts of better places than here. <laughs> what a modern world needs that is so devoid of the reality of the transcendent God is a people who in their love for each other and in the spirit that indwells us the unique presence of Christ is here, making all things new. Amen. And I, I know sometimes, especially for some of us who grew up in the church, the things that the law and the prophets, the things that we think we're meant to do as Christians, I think sometimes as a kid I thought, I have to do these things that I don't really like to do and they're not much fun. But that's okay, because what, maybe 80 is all, but eternity, I get all sorts of rewards, <laughs> right? We can often have that kind of idea that what we have to offer the world is not great now, but at least it doesn't incur judgment. I am convinced 
that God invites us through the law to become in harmony with the very grain of the universe. And the prophets invite us to resonate with the very heart and love of God. Now, as a 56-year-old, I've realized we are called to embody a life that is so truthful. We don't have to megaphone people because there's something about the beauty of our life together that is true and good and right. We don't have to manipulate people or we don't have to enforce laws to get people to do that. We can embody it in our lives together. And that brings about God's transformation in the world. Amen? Oh, that's such good preaching. Oh. One last thing. There's one line I'd love for you to underline, verse, chapter 11. In Handel's hands, chapter 11 does become the hallelujah chorus. But in verse 17, there's this line. And they sing, or they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And here's the line I'd love for you to underline. Who is and was. For you have taken your great power and enforced your rule. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was. Either a scribe lost attention right there and dropped the phrase off. Because it's supposed to be who was and is and is to come, right? All through this, it's been who was and is and is to come, who was and is and is to come, and now it who was and just is. Revelator invites us to become a people who know, don't just glory in what was, but who experience what God is doing right now because God is in our midst. And so we become a people who eat the scroll, who embody his presence as the temple, and who learn how to live the law and the prophets together and fill them full. Come, thou fount. Of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it. Mount of God's redeeming love. I love that verse. Come thou fount of every blessing. This is the key line. Tune our hearts to sing thy grace. Just sing it with me one more time. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thine grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some. Sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain, 
fixed upon him. Mount of thy redeeming love. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We recognize uh, today that, that sin does come with judgment. We, we see too much of its brokenness all around us, even today. But you invite us, um, not necessarily into predictions, but into theological pictures. To imagine our life, not just as people who know the details of Scripture. The people who have made it so much a part of themselves that it's as though we've eaten it. It's become part of us. I pray you would make us the temple of your spirit today. I pray that you would, that in our life together there would be a reality in a, in a world so desperate for the presence of God, that we would be a people in whom that presence dwells. And, and I pray that you would make our lives so truthful in the ways that we treat each other, in the ways we care for each other, in the ways that we love each other, in the ways that there is just an honesty about our lives that does not come from our own work or from our own diligence, but comes from the means of grace, making your life alive in us. I'm convinced the revelator wants us to see today that is your plan and purpose for the transformation of creation, a people called by your name, marked by the Lamb who lived that life. And so may that be true for us here at Napa College Church. Make us that people today, we pray. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's sing that again together.
Just our voices one more time on that last verse. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to thee. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my yielding heart to thee. Let me For some in this room, it's finals week, so let me get you ready. If you come across the number 12, it's probably the church. If it's 40, ah, it's a time that's long, but we'll get through it and we'll be different at the end. Six, we're not quite there. Seven, the completeness of God. And when we sing... that our hearts would be attuned to God. And when we eat the scroll and become the living presence of God, and when we, our lives embody the law and the prophets together, around here, we, we have a word for that. Anybody? Oh, you're going to do great on the test. It's the sanctified life. That's why this benediction's for us. And now, may the God of peace himself May he sanctify us together through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, may they be kept attuned to him, sound and blameless, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us to be his people, to be his temple, he is the faithful one. And he will finish that work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.